Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Gathered for Worship. And we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Singing People of God. Yes, I know. Fools go boldly and gladly where angels fear to tread. And since I'm doing a one-week topical address on the matter of God's gathered people in worship, for me to address the matter of singing at all is nothing but trouble. You know, the worship wars that we so frequently talk about are really the singing wars. And furthermore, I'm saddened that in the minds of many people, singing and worship are virtually synonymous. That is, once the worship is done, so we say, now the preaching begins. But I've been making the point that the gathered people of God gather together to worship, which includes singing, preaching, praying, reading scripture, and celebrating the Lord's table, even giving of our offerings. I've argued that God commands that his gathered people do all these things, and that's worship. And so to make singing the sole definition of worship, that betrays us. It tells us that we've made one thing into worship and have discounted all else when we gather. That fact alone, that worship includes other elements, should do something to free us from the tyranny that have surrounded the matter of singing. But having said that, I don't want to give the impression that our singing is incidental or it is a matter of minor importance, for it most certainly is not. So let's begin this matter of singing by examining the scriptural mandate to sing. The command to sing is frequently found in the Psalms. Psalm 9 verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Psalm 18:49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Psalm 21:13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Psalm 57, verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Singing has always been a part of the people of God. First Chronicles 6:31 says, These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. And that's to say, after the ark was brought into Jerusalem, David took great care that God should be worshiped in a way in which he had designed. And in order to accomplish that, David made sure that there were those who led God's people in singing. In fact, the text even mentions a man named Heman, whom the Bible calls the singer. And this habit of singing became a key component of worship in the Old Testament. So for instance, during the revivals that took place under King Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29 says that the Levites sang songs of praises. And when Israel returned back to their land after the Babylonian captivity, Ezra says that after they laid the foundation of the temple, they all sang responsively, giving thanks to God. And furthermore, there's every reason to believe that the book of Psalms really are the words that are to be put to song. You know, furthermore, 15 of our Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. They're Psalms 120 to 134, and those Psalms were sang by the pilgrims as they walked to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. And so on the last ascent up to the city, the people would sing these Psalms, and you have to imagine it. 
During the pilgrimages, the entire hills of Jerusalem would be resounding with songs as people walked and they sang. Now, let's move forward to the formation of the New Testament church. Did the early church carry on in this singing people of God? And the answer is, yeah, they did. Indeed, they did. Listen, I want to read two passages from the Pauline epistles that sound remarkably similar. So here's the first one, and it's taken from Colossians 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So here we have an admonition to both teach and to sing. So let's now read Ephesians 5.19. And this verse speaks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so we see that singing was not only integral to the ancient people of Israel, but it was also commanded for the church. And it's from that that we learn that singing is commanded of God's people. When we come together to worship, God has mandated how he is to be worshipped, and among other things, he is to be worshipped in song. And one of the features that marked the Protestant Reformation was the reintroduction of singing into Christian worship. In here, I don't mean that there was no singing in the church in the Middle Ages. There were choirs who sang, and there were also chants. But the congregation, the people, they didn't sing. And there was a reason for that. The Middle Ages church had reduced Christian worship only to that which was done by the clergy. The Catholic church had developed a theology of the church, which placed everyone into one of two categories. There was the ecclesia docens, which is the church comprised of those who teach and instruct. And then there's the ecclesia audiens, which is the congregation that's being taught and instructed. And so it was the clergy who administered the sacraments, and it was the laity who received the sacraments. And so it came to be that all of that was done in worship, came to be confined to those who were professionally trained. There was no place for the laity. And what was radical is that the reformers reintroduced singing to the church. Many don't know how radical and new that actually seemed. People would now go to church as they had in the past, and they'd actually sing praises to God. But I want to get back to Paul's command to the early church that they should sing. In both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul gives us a threefold description of what we should sing. Paul speaks of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in the modern era, a great many scholars have thought that this threefold description is not meant to differentiate between three different kinds of songs, but it's simply a multiple description of the same reality. That is, all that was meant, at least so many scholars think, is that singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a kind of a redundancy. It's a a threefold description of the same thing. But I don't think so. You see, the primary reason is that everyone in the early church would have known what was referred to when Paul spoke of the singing of the Psalms. The Psalms were not only the songbook for ancient Israel, but they were also the songbook for the early church. They would have sung the same things that Israel sang. But there's every indication that the early church was not restricted to the Psalter. And so to say that the word psalms was a reference to everything the early church sang, well, that is unlikely. And so we should say that the New Testament church sang psalms, but they weren't restricted to the psalms. And so not once but twice, 
Paul commands the church, and for that matter, all Christians, that we should sing the Psalms, but also hymns and spiritual songs. And we we need to take some time to unpack that. First, when we gather to worship, God instructs us to sing the Psalms. Now, immediately, many modern evangelicals will look surprised. I mean, outside of the odd rendition of Psalm 23, most modern evangelicals have never sung the Psalms. And I'm going to come back to that when I make application. But second, we are also to sing hymns. Now, don't jump to conclusions. Paul could not have been referring to what you might think of when we think of hymns today. That's because, as you know, the hymn book, as we know it today, simply didn't exist when Paul wrote this. I understand that it was the Anabaptists that first published a hymn book in 1564. And as I understand it, the publication of a hymnal with musical notes, that didn't come about for, well, over 250 years later. And so, no, when Paul speaks of singing hymns, he can't mean the hymn book today. So, what does he mean? Or is there any kind of an indication of what he might have meant? Well, the answer is yes. You see, most scholars believe the New Testament contains a number of examples of hymns that the early church sang. One example is Philippians 2, 6 to 11. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, all that I've just quoted, I'm of the conviction that it was none other than Paul himself who wrote that, and it was a hymn that the early church actually sang. And then when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he's merely quoting that hymn back to them because they've all sung it in their gatherings. But that's not the only example of a hymn in the New Testament. Another is 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. See, it's highly likely that the early church sang those very words. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. I've been talking about the kinds of hymns the early church sang when they met for worship. 
So I've mentioned Philippians 2, 6 to 11 and 1 Timothy 3, 16. So let me suggest another ancient hymn. This one's from 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And this passage, you know, is likely again an early church hymn. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, you could almost hear the rhythm in those words. You know, in your study, you might also want to consider Romans 1, 3 to 4, or perhaps even 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, which also likely falls into the category of ancient hymns. But what do we learn about ancient singing of these words? Of course, we don't know what kind of music was set to them, but when we examine these words, we should see that they all have a doctrinal formulation. That is, it seems to me that a hymn is a song that emphasizes the great truths of the gospel. That is, they're the doctrinal formulations of the church or of scripture. You know, in Philippians, we learn that the early church sang about the full deity of Jesus, about his incarnation, and about his resurrection. 1 Timothy 3, we see a further declaration about the nature of Jesus, as well as his incarnation and resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And 2 Timothy 2, the matter now shifts to the doctrine of the perseverance of the elect. In other words, here we shift not from singing a song about the nature of Christ, but a song about Christ being able to eternally safeguard all he has purchased through his blood. And so it seems to me that the hymns were the great doctrinal truths that the church had been taught, that they had come to believe, and to which they were committed. And I might say that the hymns were the great creeds that were essential for them to understand their faith. And I pause here to make a point. There's something about human learning that's really amazing, yeah? We do learn by being taught truths and by repeating them, but when we sing those truths, we remember it so much better. Singing and memory are amazingly connected. I need also to pause to think of some of the great hymns that have informed our understanding of the truth. I've long loved the ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church that's taught in, you know, that hymn, The Church is One Foundation. So here it goes. The church has one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, that's communion, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Now, did you notice how that verse expresses so beautifully that which is taught to us in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6? There's only one body, one church, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, so forth. That's the doctrine of the church, and it's put into music, and that would properly be called a hymn. It's a song that expresses the great doctrines of our faith and deepens our understanding of the mysteries of the gospel. But let's turn now to the matter of spiritual songs. That's the last category of which Paul speaks. If the Psalms are the singing of the Psalter, and the hymns are the singing of the great doctrinal truths of the Bible, what are the spiritual songs? Now, at this point, I've got to confess that I can't be dogmatic about it, but I'll give you my best understanding. Perhaps a part of the answer to that question lies in Paul's own descriptor of it. He speaks of making melody, and notice it's to the Lord. That is, it's directed towards God or to the members of the Trinity. 
And furthermore, the gift of the Holy Spirit, well, that's the gift that makes our faith personal and intimate. Being filled with the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Hence, at least from my perspective, a spiritual song, well, that's one that expresses adoration and love and commitment to our triune God. Now, having said all of that, let me try to put it together. It seems to me that much of contemporary singing today fits into the third category, singing spiritual songs. Uh, These songs are directed in praise and adoration and love to God. Now, you might think that many of the contemporary songs we sing are in that category, but also it's actually true that many of the hymns fit there as well. A spiritual song is not a lightweight song devoid of content. It's supposed to be biblically rich songs of adoration and praise. But here's the real issue. Most of today's contemporary singing is only in the third category of spiritual songs. And yeah, I do know that some contemporary songs are you know, devoid of content, but some, especially from some sources, they're rich in lyrics. But still, it seems to me that the majority are in the realm of spiritual songs. Seldom today do we sing the Psalter. Seldom do we sing the songs that our great doctrines, like the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the doctrine of justification by faith, the doctrine of last things, or the doctrine of the church, we seldom sing of those today. Let me go further and add one more category to our singing. Since the New Testament wasn't complete when, you know, Paul wrote, it now seems to me that it's also quite practical for us to sing New Testament verses. See, at the very least, it seems that we should encourage songwriters to give us songs in all three categories and insist on it. But I've not yet addressed the matter of how we are to sing, and here I'm going to add my own thoughts. Let me start with what microphones and sound systems have done to us. You know, with every advancement of technology comes both an opportunity as well as an unexpected element. And one of the unfortunate results of amplified music has been what has been called performance worship. Now, in that modality, worship teams, you know, rehearse a song for a set, then they perform the song for the congregation. The congregation is invited to participate in singing along, but their participation is not required in order to pull off the worship set. And the net result of performance worship is that the congregation becomes the audience. You know, in many cases, one now sees a great many people standing during the full half hour of performance worship, but many, as many as half, and sometimes more, are not singing. They're watching. And since many services are now reduced to only singing and preaching, you know, for the full experience in church, we're again reduced to the state of worshiping the way it was in the Middle Ages. Ecclesia docens, the professionals, well, they do their things up front, and Ecclesia audiens, that is the church, that is the audience, simply observes the professionals perform on the platform. So why are people standing and not singing? Well, I think the reasons are simple. Many of the songs being sung today require a technical excellence that make them unsingable for many in the congregation. And furthermore, the volume simply drowns out the congregation so that it really doesn't matter if they sing or not. They simply can't be heard. So let me suggest several solutions. At the very least, we must sing songs that are in a key that the majority of the congregation can sing. In today's worship, songs are often keyed too high for the average singer. And hence, by design, the congregation is silenced. They simply can't hit the notes. And furthermore, songs must be chosen that can be sung. 
you know, a great many contemporary songs are meant for performance and not something that people sing together. So here's a simple test. When Christians gather together in other settings, are they able without instruments, to sing the songs they have learned on Sunday morning, and if not, it becomes clear that these songs are not intended for the joint experience of the people of God. Not long ago, my wife, who's a nurse, was in a room with a patient. Her health was bad, but this woman, as she was lying in bed, started singing old hymns of praise to God, and without saying a word, my wife in the room simply sang alongside of her which that elderly woman took my wife's hand and they simply sang together. See, here's my deep concern. It's that our constant innovation in songs, we're leaving nothing to be sung as we're dying. There's no joint hymnody that can be sung by others. In the future, will the scene that I have just described in that hospital room be repeated if we simply carry on in performance worship? You see, musical accompaniment is of great value but it must serve the singers. The congregation of singers should be the thing that strikes us. The very nature of singing is that the congregation, not the instruments, are primary. That might sound less than exciting, just like being at a hockey game where, you know, sound is piped in. Amplification sometimes gets substituted for genuine passion. But there's spiritual power that few have experienced that is the passion of a congregation in which the sounds of their voices fill the room. That's what God intended when he commands us to sing. So let's press on and continue to reform our singing and aim at godliness. Thanks so much, John. You know, I'm going to get you in some deep waters again, maybe, but What can we do to help more of our congregation actually participate in singing? Yeah, so I do fear um, that I'm in, in some deep water already, but let me just restate something that I've already said. You know, if you take away all the instruments and you're just sitting around a fire in the evening, uh, maybe it's the summertime or maybe in your home, and you just simply want to sing some of the songs that you've been learning on the Lord's Day, are you able to do it? Or are the songs so complicated, or do they need such a you know complex instrumentation uh, that uh, you know you can't do it when you're just together? Because I think singing should so enter into our hearts that we reproduce it in a number of different places. So I'm arguing for singing that begins to just emanate out of people's hearts. So all of those kind of things can be. Uh, very important in judging uh, the kind of songs that we use uh, when we teach people to sing corporately. I I think there's things to be learned. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Gathered for Worship, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. The Bible speaks to the community of believers as the body of Christ. Christians are the hands and feet, voice, and heart of God. The Spirit who unites us works through us to do His will. The ministries of Back to the Bible Canada rely on these principles. As Dr. John reminds us, the most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. Partnership is always key. We're deeply appreciative for those who join us in mission through their prayers and financial gifts. 
faithfully presenting the Word of God across Canada cannot be the effort of a single part. It requires a partnership with God's people. If you wish to support the mission of this ministry or become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.